Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Daniel, and I just want to welcome you to Christ Central. We're working our way through the New Testament letter of Ephesians. We've been doing this the past couple of months. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, and this morning we're looking at the same passage. Last week, our, our hope was to have our view and our understanding of love rearranged as we looked at Ephesians 5. I want us to jump straight in this morning and dive more deeply into marriage. This is the longest New, Test- New Testament passage on marriage. And, and I'll just say before I read it that I'm thankful for many people's insights into this passage, uh, many people, other pastors, commentators. Uh, I am thankful because the Lord knows I'm not the master of being the best husband. The Lord knows and Rachel knows that I'm not the master of being the best husband. So I'll speak as one who needs to hear this message this morning. That's true every sermon that any preacher preaches, uh, but it feels uh, especially true this morning. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33 if you're able. I'm going to ask you to stand. This is God's word to us this morning. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever, the prophet Isaiah tells us. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord Jesus, in a, in a passage that is rich and so full and, Lord, with people coming in with so many different views and experiences and understanding of marriage, would you point us to yourself yet again, help us to understand uh, your design for marriage, help us to understand your love for us, your great love for us, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So Paul, the apostle, the author of this epistle, is proclaiming to us this morning that marriage matters. Marriage matters. Marriage is important. For some of you, marriage brings thoughts of joy. Some of you, it's pain. Some of you are in good marriages. Some of you are in horrible marriages. Some of you are divorced. Some of you are single and have never married. Some of you are single and never will marry. Marriage matters. It's important. Some of you are already objecting. I'm not married. I don't plan on getting married anytime soon. Why talk about this? One, because it's in the Bible and we like to preach through Scripture, so we're going to preach this passage this morning. 
But let me say a few things to those of you who are not married, maybe don't plan on getting married. Um, I'm gonna say a few things as I did last week. The first thing that I wanna tell those of you who are single and may get married is that the fruit of your future grows out of the seeds that you're sowing in the present. The fruit of your future grows out of the seeds that you're sowing in the present. Right now, you are establishing patterns of relating that are gonna affect your future. You can't embrace our current hookup culture that we live in. Flirt around, do as you want, have fun, and then all of a sudden flip a switch on your wedding day and have a harmonious marriage. Same is true, you can't live emotionally closed off, shut down in relationships and then flip a switch on your wedding day and all of a sudden live emotionally open in your marriage. How you act in the present will affect your future. Here's the second thing. There is no biblical view of dating. The Bible nowhere talks about dating. But there is a biblical view of marriage. And our view of marriage should impact our view of dating. Marriage is the proper framework for thinking about serious dating relationships. Here's the third thing. Something is shaping the way you think about dating and marriage. Something is. To ignore the biblical portrayal of marriage is not necessarily being an independent thinker. As I said last week, culture, movies, books, songs are affecting you. They're affecting me. Our experiences, parents' marriages, other dating experiences that you've had, something is molding your view. So here's what I'm saying. You cannot build a house without starting with the foundation. And we all need a deeper biblical understanding of marriage to be our foundation. See, marriage matters. Yet marriage is in decline in our country. You know that, right? Marriage is in decline. Less than 50% of adults are married today. Many people today opt to cohabitate instead of marry. Why is that, do you think? I think a big reason is that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that percentage is higher for the younger generation. 50% of marriages are failing. That is not a good motivator to get married, right? If I told you you had a 50% chance this morning to leave here and get in a fatal car wreck, would you drive your car? Probably not, right? Probably not. Christian marriages have about the same rate of success. 50% end in divorce. I will say that I know some of your marriages are currently on shaky ground. Many of you feel trapped in your marriages, bored, hurt. It sure feels more like hell than the heaven that you thought it would be. And I don't know this because I've sat down with all of you and talked about your marriages. I know this because marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. I know this because though you thought you were marrying your soulmate, once you got married, you realized that no two people are perfectly compatible. There's conflict. There's fighting. There are arguments in every marriage because this one flesh union that we call marriage is made up of two broken and sinful people. Ephesians 5 verse 32. I love this verse. It says this mystery is profound. The mystery of the gospel of redemption. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is one of the main ways that God puts the gospel on display. 
I highlighted it last week. I'm going to highlight it again this week. Paul is saying that our lives are an exhibit. Our lives are a grand play that is being put on for the world to see. Our lives are a demonstration of this mystery of God's grace and love and mercy that he is declaring unto the world. Marriage is a living drama that Christians put on for the world to show the world how God views Christians and how they view God. Marriage puts on display how God views his people and how his people view the Lord. Yet 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. How deeply sad is that? What are we declaring about our God and his love for his church? I would say that our witness with our marriages is pretty weak. Divorce is over-opted for and it is overrated. So what's the key to having not just marriages that make it, but marriages that thrive, marriages that are so good that they draw people to want to know the love of Christ because they see the gospel on display. I want us to look at three things. We're gonna look at the design of marriage, the roles within marriage, and the power for marriage. The design of the roles within and the power for. So let's look at the design of marriage. Paul quotes Genesis chapter two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. In the very beginning, God created man and woman. And God created the institution of marriage. God made marriage. It's a divine institution. God didn't create educational systems, political systems, or business plans. The Bible does not directly speak into these things. Now, of course, we can take Scripture and apply them to education and to politics and to business, but the Lord created marriage, and he speaks directly into what he created it for. Now, that's good news because we've been given direct instructions for marriage. Now, my parents, they were in town this past week. If you didn't know, we have a three-week-old son uh, who's with us this morning. And my parents were in town this past week, and Rachel had decide, decided to order a side table from Ikea. So my dad and I decided to put it together one night, and Mason men are not the most handy. Uh, normally, I am very glad to pay someone to assemble anything, but uh, Ikea is required assembly. It's supposed to be easy. Simple steps, direct instructions. Right, all of you that have any Ikea furniture know that's not the case. It's, it took my dad and I almost one hour to put together this little, simple side table. Right? God has given us direct instructions, but marriage is far from easy. I've already said it. It is, at times, extremely difficult. So what is marriage? What is it? Ephesians 5, 31, Genesis 2 says, the, uh, says the, that a, a husband, a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother and the two become one flesh. I said this last week, that's covenant language. That marriage is a legal binding love agreement. It's exclusive and it's permanent. This is what marriage is. In marriage, you are glued together in a covenant commitment based on a permanent promise. That's what marriage is about. That's the heart of marriage. 
It's not your feelings. It's not sexual chemistry, but it's a promise to remain. Now that is good news because only a permanent promise creates the context of security where you can open yourself up to someone completely. A permanent promise makes it safe to be who you really are. And let's be honest, in marriage, sometimes it brings out the worst of us. But protected by a permanent promise, marriage becomes a place where you can be totally exposed and then you can hear someone say, I love you. I accept you. I'm committed to you. I will not turn. I will not run. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to us and to what God is making us together. It is a covenantal promise to remain and it gives us security. It's also, a des- this design is to bring two into one, one flesh union. Two things that I'll quickly say about this design of becoming one. By this, your spouse is granted, by marriage, your spouse is granted the most intimate access into all of who you are. It is intimacy to becoming one. In to me, see. That is scary <laughs> and it's comforting. The other thing I'll say is this one flesh union also means that marriage is designed to be unrivaled. No one and nothing should have your loyalty and your commitment like your spouse. Marriage has priority over your parents, over your children, over your career, over your friendships. God's design of marriage, it's an unrivaled companionship based on unwavering commitment. In a culture where marriage is on decline, even in the church when it's in decline, we need to go back to the garden where God shows us the original design. It's hard, it's difficult, but it's beautiful and it's divinely instituted by God and it puts on display for all the world to see the great love that God has for us, his church. That's the design of marriage. Let's look next at the roles within marriage. I'm about to wade into something that our current culture pushes hard against. It's something that some of you may not even receive very well. One of the big things Paul is declaring about marriage is that there are gender differences within marriage. God created male and he created female in the image of God. And the two become one flesh. There is something about a man that reflects the image of God and there is something about a woman that reflects the image of God. And when these two become one, each benefits and completes the other. Biblically, there is something to masculinity and to femininity. Man and woman created equal. They're created equal, but they're not interchangeable. Equal, but not equivalent. Just like the image of God that we're created in. God is one God, three persons. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity are equal in substance, power, and glory, but they are not equivalent in their function. The Father sends the Son. The Son becomes flesh. He lives a life, perfect life, dies a death, rises to new life. The Holy Spirit is applying the work of Christ to the world. One is not more important than the other in the Trinity. 
The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally important, but all three have certain roles within the drama of redemption. See, marriage's design is that man and woman are created equal, but with different roles. Now, these, these are not simplistic roles. Very basic and very broad roles. How to specifically apply these and how it's expressed within marriage requires God's direction and God's wisdom, and it will look different in every single marriage. Listen to me. The Bible is calling us to have a marriage view that goes back to the garden, not a marriage view that goes back to the 1950s. Many conservatives and conservative Christians have specifically defined roles in ways that the Bible just doesn't speak to, holding much more to a 1950s cultural view of marriage than a biblical view. The Bible nowhere talks about who cooks dinner or who takes out the garbage or who changes diapers or who pays the bills. It doesn't even say that the husband is the breadwinner of the family. Now, the Bible does say that the husband's allowed to play golf once a month, That's all it says about the husband. <laughs> Seriously, the wife may have specific gifts and skill sets that allow her to earn more money, which then puts domestic duties on the husband. All of these things need to be worked out in each marriage through prayer and under God's direction. I hope you hear me when I'm saying that. But there are broad roles that God gives us so that's what I want us to look at next. What God tells men and what God tells women. And I'm going to start with men. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The role of the man is to act like Jesus. And how did Jesus love the church? He gave up his life for her. The man dies like Jesus died. The man dies for his wife. The man dies for his children. Verse 23 says the husband is the head. Now that does not mean lordship, and it does not mean supervisor. It does mean leadership, but it's a servant leadership. It is leading by dying, by giving. Jesus acted for his bride he gave himself up for us when we were against him. Do you realize that the bride killed the bridegroom? And yet Jesus stayed and remained. He died on the cross. He gave himself up for us. Husbands, lead. They go first. They initiate. They stay when it gets hard. They act. That does not mean being the boss. It means taking responsibility by leading in repentance, by pointing both back to the Lord Jesus, by serving, by moving first to make up for a fight. Now some of you might be this way, and some of you I know probably had fathers who were overly domineering. And if that is you, or if that was your experience, please hear me. There is no grounds for anyone, no, no man to ever be domineering over his wife. This passage rebukes any thought of that. You are to die for your wife, not abuse your wife. Now, I'm more and more convinced that the majority of men are overly passive 
and abdicate their responsibility. Man, speaking to myself here too, Adam in the garden was passive. We as men are greatly tempted to be passive. Or we can become domineering in the name of leading, and both are wrong. Both are wrong. Super Bowl is tonight. How many of you plan to watch the Super Bowl? Okay. The commercials, they're always good, right? Commercials are good. I don't know if you remember the old Miller Lite commercial. Uh, I think it came on in the Super Bowl. Men of the Round Table. Uh, and the Men of the Round Table, and they defined manhood. It was a series of commercials where Jerome Bettis, Pro Bowl, fo- Pro Bowl football player, Oscar De La Hoya, professional boxer, Ty Murray, you know, seven-time rodeo champion, Burt Reynolds, who's an actor. They sit around the table and they judge what is manly and what's not manly. They say things like this. A man shall never name a pet Fluffy, Snowball, or Mr. Whiskers. Right? A man shall never apologize or explain why he did not call a man back. A man shall never enter the no dating zone, which is Thanksgiving to Valentine's. <laughs> a man must not refer to fall as autumn, but as football season. <laughs> See, that, that is what the men of the round table deem as being a man. But when the Bible says be a man, it means give away your life. It means you act. It means you stay. It means you initiate just as the Lord Jesus did for us. And this has the total effect of verse 26, creating cleansing and cherishing of a woman. To cherish means that you have the ability to reorient her self-image. Both the man and the woman have extreme power in marriage. The husband has a power to increase the wife's sense of value, security, and beauty, or the power to do the opposite. And I'll say this is convicting to me. I've learned in some hard times and some sad times in our marriage how my words and how my looks can crush my wife. And on good days, they can lift her up and they can give her confidence. Charles Spurgeon, he shared a story, now kind of an infamous story, in one of his sermons. A woman needed an operation on her face she had a rare sickness where tentacles were growing on her face, and so the surgeon had to remove them. And, and after the surgery, she was palsied on one side of her face. Her mouth was gnarled. The surgeon was with her and her husband in the hospital room, and, and she asked, is my mouth always going to be this way? And the surgeon nods, says, yes, because I had to cut a nerve. And she begins to tear up, and she begins to cry. And the young husband quickly smiles, looks at his wife, and he says, I think it's cute. And he twists his own lips to accommodate her lips, and he kisses her. And he says, our kiss still works. See, if you're a man, if you're a husband, you twist your life for your wife. Just like Christ twisted his and gave himself up for her. Let's look next at women. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Whew! Loaded passage in our culture today, isn't it? I can feel the tension even as I read, read it. Some of you are like, in your seats. Husband is the head as Christ is the head. So it's not the husband is the source of the wife, 
It's not say the husband is superior to the wife. This has nothing to do with inherent value. It does mean leadership. Again, what kind of leadership? Sacrificial, servanthood, give away your life type of leadership. So when Paul says wives submit to your husband, he means get behind your husband. Get behind your man. Be his biggest fan. Be someone who wants to see him succeed and not fail. Because I will tell you, leadership is a lonely place. And bearing the responsibility is hard. And there are many things and many people that will try to tear a man down. Wives, you have the power to cheer your husband on and to be his biggest fan, to lift him up and call him onward. And you also have the power to tear him down with words or with questions or with a look. Your husband needs to know you respect him and that you're for him and you trust him. You have the power to enable your husband to be a man, not to replace him. Now in Val Frankel's book, Thin is the New Happy, uh, she recounts a conversation uh, that is a popular understanding of femininity today. Not a new book, it's an older book. Uh, and, th- and this is what Val Frankel writes. Women our age, uh, are, she's a younger woman, women our age are fighting a tougher battle than our mothers. They sought to be seen by men as more than just decorative sexual objects for the right not to be judged by looks alone. Our generation, the younger, even the younger generation, is supposed to be CEOs, Mothers, wives, expert lovers, have perfect bodies, run marathons, make a million dollars, be gourmet chefs, swing a golf club, never eat, never get tired. Men of any generation have never been asked to do what feminism asks of us. The Bible says be a woman. It doesn't lay out all these requirements. It simply means get behind, encourage, cheer on, be for, enable I heard the story of Evie Hill, a black pastor in Los Angeles, preaching at his wife's eulogy. Uh, Evie Hill described his wife at the eulogy. She came from a wealthy family. Her father was the president of a college. She grew up with everything. She traveled all over the world, and then she marries this lowly preacher, Evie Hill. In the early days of their marriage, he came home. He had had a very hard day at work, entered their small apartment, and she had laid out a candlelight dinner. He went into the bathroom before dinner and the the light didn't come on. He goes back out to his wife and he says, we don't have power, do we? And his wife said, honey, you work so hard, you're so dedicated, but we have no money to pay the power bill. And Evie Hill started to cry. And then in his eulogy he said, my baby, my baby. She could have said, I was raised with money. Why don't you provide for me? My baby, my baby, she could have ruined me. But she said, let's eat by candlelight. See, women, wives, you have incredible power to enable your husband. So where does this power to be a husband and to be a wife, to have this marriage, where does it come from? The only way you can love like this men and you can love like this women is when you're being loved. Men and women, we're the bride of Christ. We must receive his great sacrificial love day in and day out. When I officiate weddings, I like to read Isaiah chapter 61 as the call to worship. 
Isaiah, speaking to Israel, to God's people, says this, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Christian, God rejoices over you. He smiles at you. He takes great, great delight in you. He thinks you're beautiful. Now, right before I read this call to worship in a wedding, the bride walks down the aisle, and I have the best seat in the house because I'm right next to the bridegroom. And I see the bridegroom's face as the bride walks down the aisle. And every time, the bride's eyes are only on her bridegroom. And the bridegroom gazes upon the beauty of the bride as he takes great delight in what's about to happen. Church, we must gaze upon our bridegroom's face and see his smile and see his delight and see that he loves us with an indescribable love, so much that Christ came out of heaven and he gave himself away. He acted and he stayed, stayed on the cross even when we deserted him. We must live day in and day out as the great hymn by Samuel Rutherford sings, and we're about to sing it. It's a new song. So Samuel Rutherford says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. If we'll live this way, Our marriages will be strong and they'll be lasting and we will put the gospel drama on display to a watching Durham and to a watching world and God will use us to draw people to himself. I heard a pastor ask this and I'm gonna ask it to you this morning. Do you know why Jesus never got married? Because he's waiting on you. He's waiting on you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Church, would we know the deep, deep love of Christ and the delight and pleasure he takes in us and let's gaze upon his face. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us, Lord, help us to understand your great love for us. Help us to love you in return. And Lord, I do pray in a culture where marriage is on decline, Lord, that you would strengthen marriages in this church, that you would lead and you would, you would protect and you would guard, cause us to fight. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love towards us. Pray that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.